Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week from New York is Eileen Lawrence. Eileen has spent her most of her career in music, and she's very accomplished. She's uh, been recognized in Japan, in the United States, all over, and she seems to have been traveled frequently. But I'm going to ask her these questions and let her talk about herself rather than me just talking in your ear. So without any further delays, Eileen, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. It's um, We live in Phoenix, Arizona here, and the summer is finally over, so it's no longer in the hundreds, and we're happy. Oh, I'm glad. And even though I am from New York, I am now living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. That's great. I actually have a very close friend from there. Um, I went to school in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, we like, we like it here very, very much. So the first question I ask all my guests, if you don't mind answering, is um, how old are you, where did you grow up, and what generation do you consider yourself a member of? I'm 82. I grew up on a chicken farm in Delaware. I went to high school in Wilmington, Delaware. <clears throat> and then when I was 16, I went to the Juilliard School of Music in New York. So I think that I had a wonderful childhood because... I grew up on a farm, um, we grew our own food, and um, then I uh, went to a medium-sized city in Wilmington, Delaware, and then I went to New York, which was really quite, quite a shift, and I really credit my parents and my teachers for encouraging me all along the way to go for my dream. I don't know who said the word Juilliard to me for the first time, but I did not want to go to Curtis. I did not want to go to Oberlin. I wanted to go to Juilliard. And so uh, they had a wonderful, Juilliard had a wonderful uh, program at that time. That would have been in the 19, <clears throat> middle 50s, 1950s. They had an advisory audition. And what they did was encourage uh, musicians to come and audition for them. And I did a regular entrance audition, uh, normal entrance as a voice major. And then they wrote up a critique of me. And basically, and I, so I did that when I was 15, because I was a big fish in a little puddle and I didn't know uh, if I had any uh, hopes for doing what I really wanted to do, which was to sing. Uh, <clears throat> so they wrote up an evaluation and basically said, when you graduate from high school, come and audition for us, which I did. And uh, so I got in when I was 16 and had a wonderful time there, wonderful career there. Those were the times, however, that there were no women composers. There were no women conductors. There were very few. Yeah, there were very few women brass players. There was one trumpet player who was a woman. Uh, but uh, it was most it was a mostly male dominated uh, field, and it wasn't until I kind of grew up that I um, I began to realize that I had something to say musically, and I would then uh, compose. But I did it in a very narrow venue. I did it in the field of handbells, and um, that there was a place for women co composers, women conductors there. 
and I uh, I went into that field and had wonderful choirs. Uh, I worked with, um, well, when I was teaching school, I worked with kindergarten through 12th grade in a private girls Catholic school. And then um, when I went into church music, uh, yeah, I worked with all of them, adults all the way down to um, little kids, even before they, you know, preschool kids, I would do little songs with them. So how I, where I think my generation identification is, it depends on who I'm with at the time. That's a really good answer. And I I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, because like society has designated age brackets and groups, but I, I completely understand. And actually what I'm more interested in from that amazing, uh, I, not childhood, but uh, your youth is, uh, was the connection to church and choirs organic, meaning like were you naturally religious and that was your intent anyway, or did you kind of fall into it because music was your real passion? It's a combination. My family was traditional uh, Christian, Uh, We went to a Methodist church when I was a a little kid. Uh, But then when I went to high school, I I had a friend invite me to a Lutheran uh, congregation, and I joined that church. Um, I was always really interested in other religions. So, But sometimes, again, as a woman, it was not so easy to get in, like the Catholic church, like going to temple, the Jews. I wanted to know about the Jews. But as a woman... It was, um, it was it was not easy, but music did open the door because as a musician, I went in and I played the organ for the Shabbat services, for the high holiday services. Um, I uh, played Catholic services. I did one in Polish one time. Thank God the cantor was uh, just told me when to go because I didn't know Polish. Uh, and, um, and there was a, it was a, there was a Latin priest and uh i knew latin so that was okay anyway <laughs> and music really let me into those places that um as a as a woman i would not have fit into so easily but uh when i was um let me see in the uh, er, oh i married a jew a non-practicing jew um and uh, had quite a fight with my family and his family to, to do that. It took us, uh, I think, four and a half, five years uh, of dating and uh, trying to find somebody that our parents could accept and not finding one uh, that finally the families gave up and said, OK, go ahead and get married. But um, and, and at our wedding, which was uh, in the Episcopal Cathedral, actually, because that had been the cathedral that gave me an organ scholarship to Juilliard. I got a scholarship from Juilliard and one from the cathedral. So religion has uh, really supported me all along my way, but um, not in the traditional sense, because there's a lot of stuff that's in the Bible that I just cannot abide by, uh, like Jesus died for our sins, uh, washed in the blood of the lamb doctrines. It it has, has always been something that I just recoiled from. That's not, that's not, that's not right. Uh, God is love. Jesus is love. No father would um, sacrifice his child for somebody else's sins. That's just stupid. So I, um, I kept my mouth shut, obviously. Um, but my private 
feelings were quite um, critical of the traditional stuff. So I kept searching. And in my search, I was um, coming off a tour with um, a group called the Riverside Singers. We were all from New York. We were all Juilliard people. We were three women and three men. And we did acapella chamber music in community concert series. And we traveled about in this big old Buick, three in the front and three in the back. And um, one time after one of those concerts, and of course, being a chamber group, there's no leader. So we all just decide together. We rehearse a great deal and decide together how we're going to be presenting our music. I said to the guys, you know, how, how did we decide? How, how did that happen last night? Because there was magic that had happened in the concert. And how did that happen? And one of the guys said, well, do you believe in angels? And I said, oh, yeah, I've got one in the day and one at night, and I keep them both pretty busy. So he told me about a book that I did read, and um, I brought it home because I felt that even though my husband had not been raised as anything, he was a cultural Jew, I wanted us to have a religion that we could share together. So I read this book, I brought it home and he read it, and that became our entire lives. And uh, to this day, we, we study this book. Wow, that is, wow. I mean, I have probably 20 questions from what you just said, and I'm gonna have to keep a few away. Um, I guess my most burning question through all of that would be, um, How do I ask this? Um, so I, I wasn't raised religious either, and I'm also a cultural Jew, and so I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know, of course, the line that you quoted and that Jesus died for all our sins. So how, how, how and when do you decide to bring up that feeling to other people who are of the Christian faith? Like, does that ever come up? Is it ever a problem? Well, every once in a while, when I'm dealing with uh, sacred text, when I was in the working world and dealing with sacred texts, I would, I would say, how would you feel like changing a word or here, here and here or there? Um, and it would change the meaning of of the text remarkably. But it was like lived instead of died, or I, I mean, that's just a, a crass kind of thing. But I would, I would say, how would you feel about altering the text on that one? And they would think about it and say, yeah, that's good. We'll do that. So uh, I looked for opportunities. And of course, the music I chose carefully. Um, so um, I, had, I had some power there. And I also was extremely um, blessed. And I, I know that's a religious word, but I really feel that I was blessed because I was working with clergy who respected me and I respected them. And we had a very close working relationship. There was never any um, competition. We were all, we were both working towards bringing basically love to the congregation. And we, so we worked hand in hand, and the operative word is love. 
so if you kind of focus on that, you can find ways around things that are potentially divisive. And that 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 really goes with uh, Sufi dancing. I mean, I've done I've been with the Muslims. I've I've been I've done Sufi dancing in the middle of the night. Uh, I've done all kinds of weird, you know, to some people things. But it's it's I think it's reaching inside myself because I think that there is the spirit or the seed of my creator that is in my body and so i reach into that seed for the wisdom and the guidance that is there for the taking yeah so you're the most like intellectually heart-driven um person of faith i've talked to in a long time meaning like you really think about your feelings and you let your feelings inform your thoughts and i'm really impressed by that um so i think it's probably the appropriate time to kind of just get into the meat of the podcast which is i usually just ask people and so i'm going to ask you right now um what do you think happens when you die i believe and this is a mindle thing because i think there is a heart part of it and i my heart won't know until it happens okay uh so I don't, i'm not reserving judgment but my my mind won't let me completely completely believe that this part of my life is but a speck of sand in its entirety i think that there are and this this actually is biblical in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so i would not have told you that's a biblical uh paraphrase anyway and what i think of it is that there are mansion worlds that exist beyond planet earth and that when I don't breathe anymore on this planet, and life is really nothing more than breath. Uh, we, we come into life alone, a baby. We come into life alone, and we leave life alone. You may have somebody with you, but the actual process is alone. And the baby breathes and is in on this planet and then when you die you simply cease breathing the breath goes and i've watched uh, my sister die i watched my mother die and it's amazing it's an amazing experience of just there's breath and then there is not breath so my mind tells me that my creator did not form reality as hap as happenstance it was created for us and it it's a it's a vast university that i have so much more to learn i have so much more to to learn from others I believe in community. 
Uh, I think that there will be a community of, on, on, quote, on the other side. I really do think that. Now, whether that, and I've, I've read some of the, you know, near-death experiences that people have. I don't dwell on it at all, but I know that people have those experiences, and I'm not basing anything that I'm saying on any readings of that sort. I'm only basing it on the relationship that I have with my creator who lives inside me, in my soul. We, we are, we're developing as we live on this planet, a soul. And as we work and live and teach and learn from other people, our community is expanding. So I think that when I don't draw breath anymore on this planet, I think I will be with an increasingly large, diverse, possibly even weird, I think of Star Wars, community. They won't all look like me. You know, they could be really weird looking things. I don't know. Uh, will I? Will I accept them or not? I don't know, but that whole bit of it, there's a scene, I think it's in Star Wars, where all those critters are there, all those creatures are there, all those weirdos, and I'm saying, wow, is this, is this like going to be on another planet? Wow, it's really interesting. You have a beautiful mind, and I love the way you think, and I love the way you describe things, and so at this point in the interview, I, I know um, we've spoken previous to this, so I know that you currently have a cancer diagnosis, and you're being treated, and in your own words, you said you're following medical advice to live your life as normally as possible. And you said your husband is Prince Peter and that he takes care of you. And so you sound very healthy to me, but um, how much of your thoughts about death and dying have changed with this diagnosis? A any, none? Um, I, I don't think that the diagnosis has changed my, my feelings about that. First of all, uh, the lymphoma was caught extremely early and um, it's completely contained. And the, uh, the recent PET scan I had showed that the uh, mass has uh, diminished remarkably. And so there's no more chemos uh, in, in my history or in, in the future for me, but I'll go, into radi I'll, go, I'll, I'll go into radiology and maybe have three weeks. I, I have to meet with the oncologist uh, actually tomorrow morning uh, to, to see what the plan of treatment is. Um, and I've told, I'm told that people have lived, you don't have to completely get rid of it uh, in your body to have you know, a good life. People live with this a lot. So you know, as far as facing cancer kind of thing, it's not a big deal because my particular disease was caught early. Uh, it's very treatable and um, I have a wonderful um, medical team. When when I left the fourth chemo last week, everybody, and this is evidently um, tradition, I'm finding, everybody who worked in that office, and that means the they're almost all women, on the phone with working with other doctors, with practitioners, schedules, making sure that the dozen or so patients that are in there that day are properly directed to their next appointment and where it is and all that stuff. They all left their desks 
And as I went out the door from the treatment center, they were all there with smiles on their faces, applause. Uh, they gave me a certificate of congratulations for completing your chemotherapy. And they had a big bell there that they said, you have to ring the bell in celebration of your last chemo. And that very morning that I had gone in for treatment, I happened to be the among the first. So the staff was actually gathering for work when I was there. And they all came in and greeted each other with hugs and kisses and laughs and well wishes. And I never saw anybody greet other people so happily as that staff did to each other. And I realized that they lived in a world where some of the people they work with are facing some very heavy diagnoses and some very heavy treatment and working day in and day out in that kind of an atmosphere can be extremely stressful and it can be debilitating. So they work very hard to keep their own spirits up so that they can keep the spirits of the patients up. It was a remarkable um, it was a remarkable thing to behold how they did that. And I would not have seen it had I not been among the first of that morning. That's where they start every day. It's teamwork. It's, it's teamwork. It's family. And, and it's just surrounded by love. It doesn't mean you're going to live. It doesn't mean that you're not going to die. It doesn't mean that. But it means that we're here for you. We're here for you. That's seriously incredible, and that's how it should be, I guess. Um, not I guess, but I mean, in my opinion. Um, wow. I'm. Uh, well, first of all, I'm just very happy for you, and I <clears throat> really appreciate your attitude. And um, I'm curious, does it – you talk about the community on the other side, and you talked about how you watched your own sister and your own mother pass. Um, and so I feel comfortable asking this question because it's something I think about all the time. Uh, my brother is still here, and so are both my parents – and I expect my parents to pass before my brother and I. Um, but I am curious, are you selfish or are you unselfish? Like, what is your attitude towards you and your husband? Like, do you want to both go at the same time? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> I, I actually apologize to my husband for getting cancer. He's, he's two years old, older than I. I said, oh, honey, I'm sorry. You're, you're supposed to be the one to go first. I'm supposed to take care of you. And now here you are taking care of me. I'm so sorry. And he just kind of looked at me like, you silly wimp. One of us is going to go. So, you know, I might as well be you. It doesn't matter. You know, that's just the way that's, that's life. And so, yeah, that, that, was, that, was pretty, that was pretty funny. My sister, um, it was time for her to go. Um, I, I made sure that I was with her because I was nervous. She was being treated at a Catholic hospital. And I was afraid that the, the Catholics would go to, I didn't know if she had a, I didn't know if she had a, a living will. I didn't know if she had a DNR. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I was afraid that they would do uh, ghastly things to her. And uh, so I, I kind of went, and I, so I kind of went to protect her on that. And it turned out that they were, they kept her comfortable. As a matter of fact, when she, I, I remember the morning she passed, they let, they let me stay at the hospital in a room close by her. And I woke up, I don't know, maybe four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning with a start. And I 
ran to the nurse's desk and I said, what happened? And they looked at me very astounded and they said, let's, let's go to your sister. And so they went with me and she was, um, I don't know, she was kind of on, on her way out. That's, that's all I would say, on her way out. So I stayed with her um, as she drew her last breath. And then they let me wash her. They let me take the needles out of her body. They let me minister to her um, with them because there are certain protocol that they go through when somebody dies, they wash the body. I didn't know that, but, um, but they let me be a part of their community to do that. And that was, uh, again, a remarkable um, experience for me, just remarkable. With my mom, I, 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 I had a feeling that she was going to die that night. And we had a nurse with us and the nurse said, I'll stay with her tonight. And I said, no, I'm staying with her. You, you go to bed. Uh, so I did. And uh, there, was, there was a time that I became aware that her breathing had changed. And so I went by her side. She was asleep. And I just watched her last breath. It was extremely peaceful. And I remember very much my reaction to it. Um, I went into the bathroom and I took all of the me medicine, all of the medical stuff that was in the bathroom for her. And I tore it out of where it was being stored and dumped it in a garbage bag. Get that stuff out of here. I was furious. I mean, I was just so furious. And uh, then uh, it was morning and I went to the nurse and who was asleep, had been asleep. I said, my mom died last night. She said, why didn't you get me? And I looked at her like, what were you going to do? You know, of course, you know, and she said, well, did you lay her out? And I said, no, I didn't. She said, well, we have to, we have to lay her out. Uh, okay. So I learned all those things in, you know, in, in those times. So having had those experiences, um, I guess there's, there's one other experience I had, which is really weird. I saw a, I saw a horse uh, get away from a farm and run into the road. And I saw the horse be hit by a car. And I, I just watched what happened. And I was, I don't believe that, I, I may be weird, I don't believe that animals have souls. I think animals are animals. But I realized that there was some kind of barrier around that horse that it it was you know, I guess it was in shock and you know they they brought the vet and the vet took care of the horse but it it, it was it was just very interesting to see that kind of barrier around a horse that was protecting it from any more pain oh wow that is incredible i'm so glad you told us that because that's really remarkable and it i'll file that under what i put all these things in which is just these human experiences that we can articulate we can talk about we can share but we're never going to have scientific evidence uh or at least you know with the equipment we have and so it's it's interesting it's very compelling to me because 
I, I have seen a few animals die, and I worked in hospice care, so I've seen a few people too. And there is, there's this, there's even a term for it in the medical uh, lingo. I forget what it is, but um, yeah, there's there's a thing like this. It, your word barrier is really interesting. I like that, uh, an almost protection. Um, well, we are pretty much out of time, and this has been a fabulous interview. Um, I also want to thank my sister-in-law for connecting us, Mina. She's uh, wonderful, and you are wonderful, and I can tell why you both are friends. Um, but I do like to give my guests a chance to just kind of speak since you're going to be on a podcast and uh, people will listen to this. So if there's anything you want to say to the world, just go ahead and say it. Love. Love everybody. Love. That's, that is really the operative word. Um, also, live as if you are not going to live much longer. So take each moment you have and treasure it and try very hard not to do any harm. That's hard. It's, it's hard not to do any harm uh, because we do it in reflexively we don't really think about it we may hurt somebody uh, and and uh, so try try to not do any harm and live as if this is your last moment wow well eileen lawrence uh currently in lancaster pennsylvania and uh from new york and a chicken farm actually um thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin um i am just overwhelmed with thoughts and i'm going to be thinking about this for a long time uh and for those of you listening at home i'd just like to remind you that the best help you can do for supporting this podcast if you like it is to subscribe and recommend it to friends um and with that said, uh, this has been another episode of Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.